Welcome to Season 12 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Today I have the pleasure of sharing the second part of a conversation that I had with the incredible Stephanie McConnell, who is the founding principal of Linfield Learning Village. In this conversation, we did a deep dive into curriculum mapping, professional learning and leadership development. We talked about why we should always assume best intent, why we must reimagine leadership and how to create a village with low floors, wide walls and high ceilings. Once again, I'm in awe of her kindness, humility and generosity. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion as I did. Stephanie McConnell, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Um, it's you. an incredible privilege to have you uh, for round two. Uh, what's been happening in your life since we talked last time? Uh, I think quite a lot, Matthew. It's been, um, it's it's never dull in schools, is it? No. <laughs> I think that's, that's the joy. That's what we do. That's why we do it, because um, things are ever changing. But we've... Um, We've had a really exciting end to term three. I think the last time I spoke to you was sort of August. Um, we've had uh, our HSC students go through another cohort through our third one. You know, it's always sad to say goodbye to, to our students, but at the same time, it's exciting for them to be on their next step of their journey. Fantastic. And um, did you get a chance to relax in the holidays? Um, I, did yes. you get to go away or was it just school, school, school? Um, I always now prioritise uh, downtime in the holidays because we can't do this job unless we do take that time out, I find. So, yeah, went away for a little while, lovely beach holiday, relaxing. It's the only time that I will stop is when I go to the beach. So yeah. that's what I did for a week and then I came home and explored some of my creative exploits that I like doing at home and that's also my mindfulness. So it was good. Really Fantastic. And what, and what are some of those creative exploits? What things do you do to uh, yes. detach from, <laughs> from your responsibilities? I've, uh, I'll, we'll probably talk a bit more about this later, but each year at Linfield we have a focus for the year and last year was the year of the maker. So I took it on to do a whole lot of creative uh, workshops around the place. So I now do weaving and macrame and knitting and mosaicing and um, organic weaving with natural fibres. And so I was playing around with a lot of those things in the holidays, which was fun. Did you say last year was the year of the maker? or the Last year, yeah. So that's been evolving since then because we don't let it go once the year's over. It's kind of embedded and I like to practice what I preach. So this year's the year of play, which has also been fun. Fantastic. And Stephanie, for those people that haven't heard um, the first interview that we did, and I'll put a link um, uh, to that interview in the show notes, um, it gives a little bit of introduction of, of, of who you are, what you do, and um, yeah, but how, what's your what's your career been so far in education? Yeah, so I'm the founding principal of Linfield Learning Village, and 
have come through that journey in public education in New South Wales and have been really grateful for that experience. And it's been such a fulfilling career path for me and I have been afforded incredible opportunities to open a brand new school on what was previously a university site and to design a learning model for students from kindergarten to year 12 um, and to have a blank slate, which has been an incredible privilege. And yeah. Taken that really seriously, so yeah. I'm super lucky <laughs> to do what I do. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And and what is it that makes Linfield Learning Village so special? I, I've been there a, a couple of times, and there is there's just something about the place. Um, yeah. In your view, what is it that makes it so special? Yes, there is. I think that's what what people say when they visit. Um, I think the thing that makes it really special is that there is a genuine sense of belonging and connection to the village. And that's why, you know, some of the students when we first started and members of the community said, why on earth did you come up with that name? Linfield Learning Village, it sounds crazy, but it it fits. It was our the working title for the school when we were designing it and it just stuck because it does take a village to raise a child and we truly believe that and, we, and we've really, I think, found that in living it out that, um, the whole community is such a, a connected and, um, you know, connected piece in, in the village, in our local area. And um, and it's been, yeah, I think that, that sort of captures what the vibe's like at Linfield. It's, there's a lot of voice and choice and um, a lot of involvement from parents and, um, and students have helped build the school with me. So, yeah, yeah that's... That, that's at the heart of what it's all about yeah it, it's really fascinating because uh, my understanding is that it was a former UTS so the University of Technology Sydney campus and, and my wonderful wife was actually working at UTS at the time in the city and remembers sort of talking about this incredible um uh a sale of this UTS campus and and um it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it wasn't really designed for a school, to be a school. It was designed, my understanding, is to be a learning space. And so what were some of the differences and what were some of the considerations that you had to make to transform this space into a, um, into a functioning school? Because it, it, it was constructed as a university. So what were some of those considerations you had to think about? It was tricky, actually, because it was originally designed in the uh, late 60s, early 70s to be the Balmain um, Teachers College, and um, it then became the Karingai College of, College of Advanced Education, and then the University of Technology took over from there. So uh, there's a lot of really great things about, about it um, from the perspective of the facilities that we have for students. We've got three beautiful theatres. The biggest one holds a thousand people. And, um, you know, there's another one for 200 and for 100 that we don't use as lecture theatres, obviously, but it is also a heritage listed building. It's um, one of the few brutalist architecture buildings left in Sydney. Um, It's surrounded by beautiful bushland and therefore puts it in a category one bushfire zone. Wow. all of those factors made a really tricky build um, and repurposing it, particularly for little people, when it has been designed for adults and older older learners yeah. uh, was hard. Uh, there was also heritage considerations. We needed to keep 
um, yeah. a bit of a nod to the green carpet. Anybody uh, who's familiar yeah. with the building, it's surprising how many people actually are familiar with it, yes. would recognise a little bit of a nod to the green carpet and the fuchsia handrails that are still there in the school. But it's also been transformed into um, a, a building that I've grown to love. You know, for a lot of people, brutalist architecture can be quite confronting because there is a lot of concrete. Um, but learning to appreciate and enjoy that has been, you know, really special. And I also was privileged enough to walk the land before we began the build with our um local Aboriginal elder uncle Dennis Foley and wow. he talked about growing up in that area and how it wow. has always been a place of learning for tens of thousands of years and um, a place where corroborees would have been celebrated because it's it's quite um, it the topography is that it's sort of at the top of a hill and it spills down the side of of the hill down to the river so he told me beautiful stories of um, his heritage of of um, catching goannas in that local area and and how the women would have led the learning of the tribe in that place and so he was really happy that I was mm -hmm. I was leading the way as a as a woman in that place so it's always been a place of learning and it's so special it's really wonderful and, and what an incredible privilege um, mm -hmm. that you have to get to um, to build upon that rich history um, of learning um, you're both um, celebrating the history and the culture of the place, but also um, breaking some really new ground, which I think is really, yeah. really wonderful. And Stephanie, I did want to have a just a quick conversation about some of the values um, at Linford Learning Village. And um, I'm looking at your um, your annual school report. This sounds like a job interview. Um, it's not, right. um, uh, but um, I was really curious um, to get your. Uh, to get you to unpack a couple of them. And mm -hmm. one of them was hold lightly and tread lightly. And just wondering why, how did that make it into the uh, the school yeah. plan? Why is that so important? That's an interesting one because it was, when we first opened, obviously with a new school site, uh, we didn't have an existing community. We built the community with the school. And uh, so we we established ourselves with some um, some value statements and a code of collaboration and a vision statement. Mm. And then two or three years in, the start of 2022, we thought, oh, we, we actually need to look at these again. And they were too complex. They were too long. They didn't sort of roll off the tongue. They weren't language that we were using every day. They were still things that we believed in, but it wasn't really um, deeply embedded in our thinking and our culture. But hold lightly and tread lightly, tread lightly were phrases that we used commonly and had done throughout that whole build process, building and establishing the school in those really hairy first couple of years. Um, so the, the hold lightly part was actually about how we maintain an, an thinking innovatively and being in an innovative space. So holding lightly to your ideas is something that allows us as teachers particularly, to, to move on when things aren't going to work necessarily at that point in time in the way that we think that they might. And teachers are very good at being creative. And our, our you know, we're learning designers. We are, we are incredibly creative. And that's, I think, one of the things that teachers love the most about the work that we do. But um, we also have a tendency to hold a little tightly when we've spent a lot of time designing something. And I think I mentioned this in the last podcast and we don't want to let go of it when it's not working. So we've got to hold lightly. So we we have what we call parking lots when we design 
learning so that if there is an idea that's not that's before its time we can still park it and come back to it later when perhaps it does have a time and a space to really work well the tread lightly part of it is around that sustainability piece certainly and it's it does follow on nicely from what I've just talked about with regard to being on Aboriginal land and being aware of how, you know, the path that we tread and the impact that we leave in both a positive metaphorical sense, but also in a physical sense that we we tread lightly Mm -hmm. on our environment and we do need to do that far more consciously. Um, and teach our children to do that for the sustainability and future of our planet. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. And another one of your six values, which I absolutely love, and I think it's actually great relationship advice as well, is assume best intent and be optimistic. Um, as a school leader, um, why is that important? Because I can only imagine your job is immensely complex. Um, mm. Uh, why is that um, an important um, value um, that you've adopted in the Learning Village? It's a super important one because I think, you know, in, in any workplace, but particularly in schools, we work so closely with other human beings. And I mentioned that in the last podcast about how the unique thing about schools is that every element of what we do has a human component. And so we all... I believe bring our best self to to work every day, students and teachers. But behind that sits a whole life and experience that is unique and individual to each one of us um, and that we don't always necessarily, um, in interacting with each other, uh, you don't necessarily see your best self sometimes. And we can get frustrated really easily and interpersonal, you know, relationships in staff rooms and in classrooms are really critical to positive experiences of learning. So we do need to, um, you know, when when de- when we're dealing with those sorts of situations, assume that that person has come to it with the best intent and sometimes what we see or what we hear mm. might not necessarily be what they intended. Yeah. And, yeah. and that optimistic mindset, I think there's there's so many big and complex things that sit behind and yes. our values. But obviously optimism and hope are such critical things for us to have yeah. in schools and for children. Yeah. And um, it's really one, you know, those two words are driving the next five years of thinking for LLV um, around hope and optimism for the future because for so many young people that's a real challenge i I couldn't agree more and i think um we both have the the privilege of working for the department of education and it's an organization that i um care deeply about but there are also a number of challenges and a number of people that get frustrated at things which i think is quite natural in any large organization And, and i i really loved that one because i think what we need more Uh, what we need now more than ever in our profession is that assumption of best intent and also that optimism um, because there's just so much at stake. I mean, as I I mentioned, I think in my last um, conversation with you, um, my little one just started kindergarten and in a couple of years we have another little one starting kindergarten. And for me, um, that really changed the game for me. um, And it really made me ask those questions about um, 
about the importance of um, great teaching, about the importance of speaking well of our profession. I always have done that, but it was just a reminder, I think, that um, there is a there is a time and a place to um, to challenge things and be frustrated, but there's also a time and a place, I think, to um, to be really optimistic, and we need that more than ever um, because young people's futures depend on it. And um, yeah, that one really, I, I don't know if um, people get as excited as I do at reading school plans and strategic directions, but that one really, that one really stood out to me. And and just one more, um, uh, if you don't mind, Stephanie, just before we move on and have a little bit of a chat about some um, uh, curriculum. Um, and I really loved the idea of um, being the change that you wanted that, sorry, that you seek. Yes. And I, I just wanted to ask you, um, I mean, you are part of a school that is really um, pioneering and really, um, it really is a, it, it is a flagship within the Department of Education. How important is it for you as a, as a staff um, and also as the, the, the school principal to be, um, to be trying new things and to be, um, continually reflecting on your own practice and asking those questions and because we expect that of our kids it must be really important I think for you to be doing that as a as a leadership team sorry there's a question in there somewhere that's um, right. so you can unpack that absolutely but, yeah. yeah well that's that's so true for all of us I think because being the change you seek is actually about for us encouraging people to take initiative and valuing the contribution that everybody makes to mm. our school and um, rather than, you know, that situation that we often find ourselves in where someone's complaining and whining about, you know, I hate how this happens and, um, you know, particular situations in schools that they're dissatisfied with, we would say, well, you know, what come with a solution? What, what mm. would you like to do about that? You are that. in control of your space. You are in control of what happens in in your learning environment with your team and with your students. So um, be that change. Do whatever you think needs to, to happen to improve the situation. Don't wait for someone else to come along and fix it for you because we're all responsible for the part that we play in the bigger picture mm. of teaching and learning and, and the experience that we create for our students every day. So being the change you seek from a teacher perspective is really about that. But for students as well, um, I, I think... We want to really encourage and empower them to step up and face those wicked problems of the world and to seek those changes that need to be made, fundamental changes. I've already talked about sustainability and caring for the planet and, you know, the future that these young people are inheriting is a really challenging one on so many levels. So being the change you seek allows them the freedom to step up and to seek change, to seek yeah. improvement, to yeah. um, to change the world. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I know it sounds really flippant, but it it's actually what I deeply believe is our responsibility as educators um, is for future change and for a better world. Absolutely, and and I loved one of the the driving quotes on your website. Um, it says, um, "To find the core of a school, don't look at the, its rule book or even its mission statement. Look at the way people in it spend their time, how they relate to each other, and how they grapple with great ideas." And that's from uh, Ron Richard. And I think that really embodies that, doesn't it? It's going back to that community and that learning village, um, as the school is named after. Um, but I love that idea that we all as a staff or as a school community, you are kind of grappling with some of these really big ideas that many people would be 
um, too afraid to address. Um, and, and I think it's really, it's really wonderful to see that productive struggle through some of these incredibly challenging concepts and challenging these assumptions. And uh, Stephanie, I just wanted to ask, um, there'd be people out there, people that are listening to this all over the world, wherever they're listening from, saying, that, and, and they, that they might think that it can't be done. Um, I, I would just love you to maybe talk a little about some of the, a little bit about some of the, the data from your school and what that is suggesting. Um, and is it actually possible to build to build a school that is um, innovative, uh, that is breaking new ground, but is also um, one that is really um, academically quite rigorous? Um, what, what would you say to that? Absolutely, it is. And I think that was that's been our challenge and our question since we began in 2019, because coming in with a blank slate and taking really seriously what that opportunity afforded us, we were really deliberate about what we put back on that blank slate. And we didn't just put things back on because that's how they've always been done in schools. So we did get um, we began with 350 students and a very supportive parent community, but it it didn't take long before there were those questions about, well, how do we know that this is working from both staff and parents and the wider community and certainly from the media and politicians? How do we know that what you are doing is not just experimenting with my child? And that's a fair enough question to ask. So we have been very deliberate from day one uh, about collecting data and collecting data that matters. And, you know, you would be aware that in schools we are overwhelmed with so many sources of data to the point where I believe it becomes unproductive, where teachers have got so much data coming at them that they don't have the time or the the ability to curate that information in a way that allows it to be meaningful in the classroom for the kids that are in front of them every day. So we developed a data framework where we we asked ourselves the question of, you know, we, we first of all talked about the fact that we wanted to um, assess what we value and not just um, value what we assess, which is, you know, a phrase that's used quite commonly. But we, we sort of said, well, what do we want to know about? When, when we're answering that question of how do you know this is working, what information is going to, uh, you know, give us the answers to that? And we decided that there were four key areas that we were interested in finding out about. So obviously student academic progress is is number number one. Alongside of that is student well-being. And, um, and then there is teacher growth, which is super important. And then parent satisfaction and engagement was the fourth area. And so with each of those four, we then looked at three data sources that we could use to give us information to then triangulate in each of those quadrants, ideally with one of those being an external source of data. Um, so NAPLAN and HSC certainly are, are one one data but data piece in that academic um, quadrant, but it's it's you know there are so many other ways that we can do that. But it helped us to refine down the information torrent that streams into schools to really clear and definable data sources that we can then uh, we then have a calendar where we map each of each of the the time frame around each of the data sources when it comes in, when we need to send out surveys, for example, staff, parents, student surveys, um, and then actually 
having people deeply analyze that data and then implement what we have learned from that. And that has been really critically important in helping us to shape what we do and to be able to show really clearly that what we are doing is working. So when we were put in a bit of a spotlight a couple of years ago um, with some media attention, it led to um, John Hattie coming in and doing a really deep dive into what we were doing and the success measures that we were looking at. And that was that was actually a really important and positive experience for us because what Hattie found was that what we are doing is exactly the type of thing that he sees as being really significant in terms of the effect size for learning. And we also know that it takes a good five years of um, of any kind of startup, for want of a better word, being in place before you see the real data come through. So when we first began, we didn't have any kind of history of data to draw from in order to make comparison. 2020 being first year of COVID, there was no NAPLAN. And so it it took a good three or four years before we had a solid history of data that we could that we we could analyze in terms of comparative data. So what we have found, um, and this again is not something that we focus on at Linfield because um I, I think my, I've got very strong feelings about the way we need to shift um, what we mean by success and how we measure it in schools. But what we have found is that if you create the right environment, if you create a healthy school, then the results naturally follow. So our second HSC cohort through uh, last year in 2022 um, came in the top 100 of the state. I've never achieved that in any other setting where I've been a principal or where I've, I've taught, um, but in our second year of, of HSC, um, you know, that was a great achievement. And then this year, my director rang me after the NAPLAN results came out. She said, Stephanie, talk to me about your NAPLAN. I went, oh, well, what would you like to know? <laughs> Gosh, put me on the spot. Um, and then she said, well, they're extraordinary. You know, how do you account for that? Wow. And I said to her, well, it's because we know that what we are doing works. We know that that healthy school environment will lead to, naturally will lead to those results in measures that people think are important, people outside of schools believe are important. Wow, there's there's so much in that, um, Stephanie, and I think it's, um, I think it, it, it's really um inspiring to see as i said i, I care deeply about my profession and, and deeply about the organization that we both work for mm. uh, and it's so wonderful to see that it is possible um and that once you get those um contextual things right once you get the the school structure right and the curriculum planning you can actually see some really wonderful results as you are um seeing and um, stephanie i just wanted to to ask um how do you you mentioned sort of that the the community at first was quite apprehensive because they didn't want kind of their children to be in an, in an experimental model which as a parent i completely understand um what were some of the ways that you laid your community through that process um uh, what were some of the kind of the key things that you did to build that community trust and involvement well i think first and foremost everything we do is based on solid global educational research we don't just make stuff up we research and read really widely all the time and we make 
really clear well we make we make decisions um not flippantly but with a great deal of consideration for our context and our students and um and and i i think the other thing about our initial and current parent community is that they have chosen something different for their children because they do see and have concerns for the way the world is now and and the the challenges that their children will face and they they know that in their heart of hearts the traditional model of teacher delivered learning you know that that mass education model doesn't necessarily work for every child and it certainly doesn't in my experience engage many children uh, i think children become very good at being compliant but that doesn't make it engaging or meaningful learning for them so I think what we were able to do was to reassure parents through a whole lot of information sessions and when we don't have COVID in play you know we are able to bring parents in to actually experience the learning that their children experience to take them through uh, experiences of what it's like to be a student in the classroom at Linfield. We've got a super supportive, um, what in some schools would be a PNC or a Parents and Citizens Association. They call themselves Friends of the Village at Linfield. So from the beginning, um, they have worked with us so that the the termly meeting of of the parents actually also engages them in the type of fun learning experiences that we do at school it's not a boring meeting so we get on average between 60 and 100 parents turn up to every pnc meeting which is a bit unheard of but it's really shows how deeply engaged they are with what we're doing and how supportive they are as well so i think over time certainly um as we became much clearer about who we who we are what the what the edges were around what we were building and could really reassure parents and they could see they can see so clearly yeah. how important it is and how effective it is for their children um over time that has really um been you know much less of an issue for parents in terms of your curriculum because i'm sure there's some teachers out there that um are thinking how on earth does this actually work i mean how do you run stage not age-based cohorts um what's the ratio of teacher to students? And I can just imagine people's questions, people's minds spinning at the moment. Um, how do you sort of practically or logistically map your curriculum to make sure that you are covering everything? Um, is it, I'm sure it's structured. Is there chaos within that structure? Is it, what, what, what does it look yeah. like? Because I uh, think the diversity within a, um, a year one or a stage one classroom is immense. I could imagine that would only be, magnified across um across your school so how do you have any thoughts on how you do that so effectively at Linford Learning Village it's not easy it certainly is, is um it is a challenge but it's I would not do it any other way now that we have you know reached the point where I I think we've nailed a lot of those horizon goals that we started with and we we do talk about horizon goals because they are lofty Mm, mm. you know from a teacher's perspective as we've built the school together we really needed to just focus on what the next step was towards each of those goals one of the greatest challenges I think that we faced is actually the transdisciplinary learning model and um, the stage not age is a challenge for a lot of people who come in and see what we are doing because it, it is quite a different way of structuring a classroom environment but it is 
so much more powerful. And as you've already described, just a, a stage one um, or, or year one classroom can have such diversity in it. But when you have a, a learning environment where there are students um, from kindergarten to year two in a hub and then year three to six working together in another hub, year seven and eight in together as stage four, nine and ten in together, you know, it just it does blow people's minds. But it doesn't change the diversity in that classroom because you can have, as we know, um, you know, students operating at across three to five, sometimes more years of um, their education in in one cohort. So this just provides us with an opportunity to actually capture that diversity. And what we do, I think, to um, to really nail the pedagogy at Linfield is incredibly good differentiation because we know that's important in any classroom. But what it allows us to do is for those students who might excel, for example, those gifted students who excel in education and learning are able to continue beyond um, you know what what might normally be offered if they were in a, a an age-based learning environment without being removed from their social network and their friendship group because one of the challenges of gifted education is that those those children feel that they don't fit anywhere they don't fit with their age group and they don't fit with their the, the stage of learning that they're at group um, they're somewhere in between and they're 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 not accepted by either group so they're they're always somewhere in the middle and there's real really significant social challenges for a lot of students who find themselves in that situation but at Linfield we talk about low floors wide walls and high ceilings the students should never hit the ceiling of learning and and the the stage not age-based model actually allows us to do that really effectively it also allows for students to move between um you know, we've got some students who are in the old primary years who are accessing learning in our high school because they can. And why why shouldn't that be an opportunity that we capitalise on as well? Um, so, you know, for some some people who are primary teachers, the, the three to six hub is quite a challenging concept because um, it crosses stages. And the New South Wales curriculum is actually written in stages. It's written um, in two-year stage groupings. Uh, so it, it makes sense to actually teach it that way. It's um, it is actually quite logical, even though it doesn't seem like it might be, because that's just the way we've always done it. But it's not the way we have to do it. I love that, and it's the assumption that just because we have done something a certain way, it doesn't mean we need to keep doing it. And it would be amiss of me, I think, Stephanie, to ask um, with the time that we've got left, um, what journey have you taken your staff on in terms of professional learning? to be able to be the type of staff that your students need um, because it sounds like a huge mindset shift not only for the parents um, but also the staff as well. So would you mind maybe talking a little bit some, about some of those professional learning models that you use um, and what have been some of the successes with those? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it has been an enormous journey and I, I could not do that without my incredible staff and each year as we grow and we add more staff to our mix, each brings new richness to that model. Um, but it has really been about shifting that mindset of what it means to be a teacher because everything we do is team taught. Nobody works in isolation. Um, so it does require us to, to develop 
new structures and new ways of thinking, new ways of interacting with each other, particularly in that transdisciplinary learning approach, because um, it's it's not in, in a high school setting, you know, for anybody who teaches in secondary, that's quite a radical way of, of operating as well, to not just have students go from maths to science to English to history in a day, to actually have a completely integrated quest-based transdisciplinary learning model requires teachers to operate differently, to operate across faculties, to not, um, you know, think or operate in the same way as they always have. So our professional learning, uh, you know, our professional learning model is that every teacher is a researcher of their own practice um, in a nutshell. So that means that they are able to explore and delve into whatever they need. And we have teacher growth plans that are supported, you know, through uh, mentoring and and, um, all of those things that we know are really important coaching um, experiences. But um, what our teachers also do really well, I think, is, uh, is, you know, they've been given permission to create, to be, um, you know, to, to continue to innovate and to do new things. So, we've we're constantly evolving and changing so we don't have professional learning meetings we have um and we don't have meetings either for the sake of meetings so we meet when we have to when there is a reason to have more than one person in a room to do something that's why we meet we don't meet um for any reason that can be communicated via email thank goodness um we we build things together. Um, so our our transdisciplinary learning team, for example, changes every term. One, you know, from teachers from each different faculty represented in a stage four quest team, for example, there'll be a quest lead, there'll be a literacy and a numeracy lead, there'll be a faculty lead, which makes sure that all of those syllabus outcomes from each faculty area are being covered over the course of a two-year cycle. Um, there is obviously the literacy numeracy people do the same to make sure that they're being, um, you know, really explicit about teaching literacy and numeracy skills. Um, there is sort of resource and creative leads to, that think about the structures of the learning. So making sure that the consistency of the pedagogical modes that we use are apparent throughout everything that we do. We use Canvas as an online learning management system, which allows us also to really nail the rituals and routines of learning that we know are really important in open learning environments, which is what we have at Linfield. So all of our learning spaces are double classroom spaces, very transparent where students um, move in and out of spaces and into common spaces and into adjacent maker spaces, depending on what the learning demands are. But the you know, the mechanics that sit behind all of that in terms of what you were asking before are incredibly complex. It is certainly um, a much harder space to work in in a lot of ways than to just pull out the program from last year and off we go in, you know, the classroom of one teacher and 30 students. There are far more moving parts, I think, in the way that we do things, but it is also um, a system where I think if you spoke to any one of the teachers at Linfield, they would say, I couldn't go back to doing it any other way so our professional learning is um responsive it's as we we see the need um we react we don't just import programs we don't send people out to professional learning we we believe that the answer is in the room and that the collaborative strength of the minds that we work alongside uh the way that we would find the answers to whatever we need next in in terms of iterating our model yeah, and it really, um, it, I mean, going through your website and uh, is, is um, 
has given me it's probably cost me a couple of hundred dollars in new books to read to be honest um hopefully that's a work related <laughs> um it, it is so research driven um uh, which is really wonderful and then you've got authors like um uh, Seth Godin the song of significance talking about um like a soulful reimagining of what leadership can be and I love that you are using these ideas and concepts and things that work really well outside of school world and bringing them in um to serve who I believe matter most which is our wonderful students and it's it's really lovely and really um refreshing to see that and I was just wondering uh, Stephanie what are some of the um qualities that you look for um for um teachers um who are who, who would love to sorry let me rephrase that uh, what are some of the attributes that you look for uh, in teachers that would be suited uh, to Linfield Learning Village I think there's a there's a real need to be vulnerable and open to learning and to change. Um, it's interesting because we have had people who have come to us thinking that that we are the answer to all of their, you know, frustrations in education. Yes. And um that's not necessarily been the answer for them or people who thought that they knew the way and had a better way of doing things and not really great at collaborating and they've found that that's not be really been the solution for them either but there are also people who have come and been completely transformed by the experience of being at Linfield and it's so deeply personal as well and I talked about this last time about our identity as teachers being so intertwined with our personal identity and I think that's what we find it it is such a deeply collaborative environment that we feel like family and we we do um you know deeply connect with each other um in in such significant ways that um that I think you know it's it's really really very powerful so i believe that um you know for anybody coming into the school we initially looked at qualities of innovation and creativity but then we found we had a whole lot of creatives and nobody could, who could really get the logistics in place and and land things so you actually always need a balance I mean it's life isn't it we're silly to think that we just want one type of person we we need to have that variety I'm a strong believer in the fact that schools need fresh running water running through them all the time which means that you know we need new staff we need new thinking we need to be open to the fact that you know people's lives change and for goodness sake half of my teachers are having babies at the moment and you know all of that change is important and valuable and it brings fresh ideas and new people into the mix um but it it's um it's that balance of having those practical logical uh, people alongside the the creatives and um, and having that balance of of being able to bring all of that together that I think makes it really work well. It sounds um, it kind of sounds like an orchestra to be honest. Like and there's all these different parts and they sound noisy on their own, but it's when they work together um, and they're synchronized as one, moving in one direction that that's where you get the the music yeah. and that's. Um, I have so many questions um and it's really as i said it, it's incredible to see um that it is possible and um do you think stephanie that linford learning what is happening at linford learning village will become 
the norm um, moving forward? Um, yeah, interesting question and quite a tricky one. But I, I, I think, you know, the fact that we have two to three groups of visitors just about every week at Linfield tells me that people are certainly interested and invested deeply in looking for this type of change. And I would never encourage anyone to come and just pick up and dump the Linfield model elsewhere. The the key principles are very much takeaways and we do um, encourage, you know, educators that we work alongside to think about what is one Thing that they might take away from their experience of spending a day with us and do the next day in their school, what they might do the next week, and then looking forward to what they might do the next term or the next year. Because I, I think fundamentally, and because it is so deeply based on research and what we know works well and works best in education, which is to have students Mm. at the heart of what we do yeah. um it's really just as you said about showing people what is possible within a highly constrained environment of you know the curriculum and the the landscape that we work in that there is so much possibility and so much um scope for really exciting things to be happening that um you know it, it is it is worth looking differently at what you might be able to do within your own classroom because everybody, you know, my son's just graduating um, as a teacher and he will start um, next year in the classroom. And he said, how far down the track do I need to go before I can start making changes to do the sort of things that you do at Linfield? And I said, you you start on day one because you are in control of your classroom space and you've got to understand that, you know, that will, you know, so that's that's really important to to utilize that to your best ability and yeah. to make most yeah. of those opportunities that we have in every school every day. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so important, Stephanie, as well, because it's not what ha- what's happening at Linfield Learning Village is not a franchise model. It's not one that we can just adopt and stick into our school context. But there are so many things that we can take away from this, whether it would be curriculum mapping or personalized professional learning or getting rid of meetings or whatever it may be. Um, I think there's there's definitely something in there that we can do. Um, and I think it's it's also having the confidence, I think, to to be able to say what works, to know your school context and not and, and know what works for your context, as opposed to trying to be a a cheap imitation of someone else, <laughs> to actually have that authenticity to say, you know what, this is us, this is what we stand for, this is what our community needs. I think that's um uh incredibly um incredibly powerful and um i just had a, just a couple more questions if you don't mind stephanie i was just wondering how on earth you you how do you focus on what matters i mean the role of a school principal um is immense um and i was doing an interview a little while ago with dr adam fraser and he was talking about um, he's not a teacher but he was saying that the job of a school principal is by far the most complex role that they have studied um, across professions but not only are you doing the role of a school principal but you're also um carving out new ground and setting a new direction for um for your school so how do you sort of practically handle that influx do you have emails on your phone do you not have meetings before seven or how how do you do that and is it something that you feel like you have um have you won the war against that or is it more of a, a daily challenge? Because I don't know how you do it. Um... <laughs> I 
I, it is a daily challenge, I think, but it is something that I'm definitely getting a lot better at. So I will batch emails. Um, we have what we call office hours in our senior executive mission control, it's called. So um, we are available for anybody who wants to speak to us from eight o'clock in the morning until school starts at 10 to nine, recess lunch after school as a stock standard everyday um, offering. So people know if they need to speak to us, that's when they can come and have, you know, open door. It's always open door, but it also allows us to to, to batch that sort of experience so that we do have time within the school day to then do um, what we call um, KTLO, keeping the lights on, and MTF, which is moving things forward. So there are those things that we have to do every day to keep the lights on, to keep things chugging along. We have to be responsive to what comes at us on a daily basis. And certainly I think there is a real risk in the principal role of being swamped by emails and being tied to your desk in response to the to the slave of the scrolling email screen. Um, but I find that it is so much more powerful, so much more significant in terms of my positive mindset if I get out every day and spend time in classrooms with students. And um, and that is something that you actually have to prioritise and make yourself do because it's too easy to sit and, um, and look for the next email that's demanding your attention. And, and we also make a bit of a rule, um, well, it's not a bit of a rule, it is a rule that we are all responsible for our own well-being at school so nobody questions you if you walk out the door at three o'clock in the afternoon because you know for a lot of my teachers they've got to go pick up kids they've got their own lives we 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 then you know might come back and have to to work till whatever time of night and what we're preparing for tomorrow so we don't judge again we assume best intent about what each one of us needs to do in our lives and the same is true for the way my staff see me and I I also make sure that I look after, you know, my physical health and well-being and do Pilates and yoga and mindfulness and all of those sorts of things that have taken me through some of the toughest times in my career path. So I know that it takes me a good three to four days, sometimes more in the holidays to come down, to come down from that heightened state. It's, and it is, you know, it is really about, um, you know, at some points living with a generalised anxiety disorder and I think that is the reality of, of the life of a principal these days. And it is an enormous challenge that we need to face and to face as a serious issue in the principalship because we are we need good people stepping into leadership positions and it needs to be something that is manageable. Um, so we have to understand that it is it is really tough mentally and, and we need to give ourselves um, the freedom to say no and the ability to walk out the door at four o'clock in the afternoon, if that's what it takes, and say my day is ended, and and mentally to lock the door behind us, so that we can have that time with and space to spend with family um, when we get home, because that's that's really important as well. And I've always said to my children, um, you know, I will always pick up the phone, no matter what I'm doing at school. You are more important than anything else that I do, because I think they need to know that, and we need to balance that in our lives. We have families, we have lives beyond school school is is a job and it's 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 a really important job and the work that we do i think is fundamentally one of the most important jobs in society but we also need to look after ourselves and there is far too much um you know um, neglect of mental health and the anxiety and depression in young people today we need to model that 
and do something differently. And as a principal, I believe that that's um, a really important job for me to be able to do. So putting in those strategies has been really helpful. Stephanie, I could not agree more. And I think that's a wonderful place to to wrap up our discussion. I think it's it's always a pleasure hearing um, your story and your incredible journey at Linford Learning Village. And I, I can't thank you enough for for saying yes to having another conversation with me. Um, and my hope is that there would be teachers all over the world that would really learn something from our discussion today. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very humbled to be invited back for a second conversation. It's been so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.